0: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Shigon podcast. This, um, this is your host Jeff Fry. Today I have a very special guest, a very one of my best friends in the world, James Craig Flowers. I never call him by his first name; I call him Flowey. Um, Colonel Flowers served 25 years in the army. He was the founder of Sideline Leadership. He's a keynote speaker coaching me along in my budding speaking career. He's also the radio host of The High Ground on the Horn Radio Station in Austin, the most listened to um, sports show in Austin. And he's an avid hunter, an avid fisherman, and an avid golfer, and just one heck of a nice guy, and it's my honor to... Introduce to you Colonel Flowers. What's up, Flowey?
1: <laughs> Frito. Oh, I'm so glad we're doing this. And uh, it's it's been interesting following all the guests that you've had on and uh, flattered my friend that you would have me on the She Gone podcast. I love it.
0: Well, I've been wanting to do it forever. You know, I had my original podcast and kind of stopped doing that for a while. And then Dave and uh, Kevin Kernan approached me about doing this and I couldn't pass it up. And um, very fitting that uh, this week, Team USA 18U won a, uh, you know, won a, I guess the title in their um, tournament, and uh, I thought it was just a perfect time to get you on here and talk a little bit about some of that stuff. We'll uh, we'll touch base on that here in a little while. But I want yeah, congratulations
1: player. to them. I'm proud of them that they uh, won. I'm proud that they won, Frito. Me too, buddy. Me too. I- I want to uh, start with
0: how we met each other, and I was looking back at the article today of Josh Holden. It was in 2005. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, one of your college teammates at TCU, Kurt Godby, called me one day and said, uh, I knew that I had been a sports agent. I was really in the early stages of learning how to be a sports agent with no training whatsoever, and he called me one day and said, hey, would you be interested in helping an Army cadet try and play professional baseball? And I said, absolutely. I didn't even know who this guy was. I mean, I didn't know who Josh Holden was or his story or situation or anything. And through that process, I got to meet you uh, over the phone, which was strange at first, Meeting you're the first colonel that I've ever met. And then um, (laughs) – Uh, then next thing you know, I'm talking to people at the Pentagon, at USA Baseball. I'm like, "What am I doing?" And and finally, you come to, to Fort Worth, and we meet at uh, Joe T. Garcia's one evening with all your old teammates. And uh, you know, I got the coin. You taught me about the coin. And next thing you know, I'm going up to flying to New York, touring West Point. I'm at the Army Navy Gala, getting my picture taken with Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> standing on the bench on the sideline for the army navy game and i'm like what is going on my whole world changed that day i was experiencing things i never thought i would have a chance to experience but through that process you and i and quite a few other people helped josh holden become the first army cadet ever allowed to leave the army and play professional baseball
1: yeah he did a, he was a remarkable athlete as uh I think Freddie Benavidez, who's now with the Reds uh, still coaching, but Freddie played shortstop for the Reds and the Rockies for a long time. He was our teammate, our shortstop at TCU. And Freddie, you know, once Josh uh, went to that open tryout, and of all places, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, uh, from Fort Sill. No, I see he was – was he at Fort Sill? I guess he was. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, went to an open tryout and – Anyway, the, the Reds wanted to sign him right away. And of course, when he reported in, and this was the entire back page of the USA Today, when he reported into the uh, the, US, the uh, Cincinnati Reds organization, uh, of course, they put him through. He, w- he was wearing his military uniform and they called him Rambo, but they... Put him through all the tests. And according to Freddie Benavidez, all the flexibility, strength, and speed tests, he, he set new records. He was quite an athlete. He was also the running back for the army football team back then. And just, uh, um, you know, the hard work and then him going to that open tryout and then you, you know, pro bono deciding to a lot of ways to serve one's country. And you certainly stepped up and, and took care of Josh Holden and the army, Army saw an opportunity to allow a great athlete like this, who was also a young man of character, uh, to get a chance to play pro baseball. And and then later he came back and was deployed in combat operations abroad in support of our freedom here at home. It was it was a remarkable story, and Josh Holden did really well. And uh, gosh, he, he was some kind of athlete. Hit from the left side, played center field, just moved differently than the other cadets, and it kind of stood out at the time. And so... It's a pretty, pretty neat story, and we'll always be tied together to that. And, uh, you know, baseball brings together the relationships that last a lifetime. And that's, that's what I love about the game. And there's not a week that goes by that, that I don't have a dream of some sort of, of baseball. And, you know, some of those mornings are my best mornings when I wake up and having just had a, a dream about the game and that we love so much that we grew up playing as, as little boys
0: yeah it was really cool um I forget exactly it wasn't two or three months ago when you came to to fort worth t c u and the army was playing t c u and you got to throw out the first pitch
1: and Josh Holden came to town for that yeah that was a remarkable weekend you know i can if i allow myself I can get emotional about that but that that weekend was was pretty neat in that all of our family and and Kirk Sarlos, the head coach at TCU was, you know, behind that. And a couple other folks that said, Hey, you know, I I had the privilege of coaching being an assistant baseball coach up at West Point for that magical year in 2005. And, um, but I'm required by law to tell you that we swept Navy that year, four games to nothing, (laughs) but, uh, we finished 39 and 14 and, and we had several players drafted off of that ball club. We had our first win in the NCAA tournament. And, uh, beat beat number five Florida in Gainesville which was pretty neat but we um, later got the invite to, to throw out the first pitch back to your point uh that was pretty pretty neat out seeing all my old teammates out there and and you and josh and and being able to do it on my old playing grounds there at in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, w- was pretty remarkable. <laughs> they uh, you and I practiced the day before we went to a gym cause it was, it was raining so hard that, but I, I wanted to be sure that I could get it over the plate. I think it was a little high. That's the second first pitch I've thrown out, but you know, someone told me about first pitches, Frito. He said, if you get asked to throw a first pitch out, uh, there are three things. First of all, And not that, not the don't bounce it thing that, you know, we hear about with President Bush and Derek Jeter, of course, another great baseball story, but uh, a guy that had thrown out several first pitches from Texas A&M, he told me, he said, okay, and this guy was a pitcher and he said, first of all, take a glove with you because that gives you the balance. Make sure that, that you warm up and before you, and, and don't, and you've got to go to the rubber. You can't throw, you know, my wife, Miss Beth, you know, she was saying, honey, you know, you don't have to go up, you know, to the, to the pitcher's mound. And I said, no, I'm, I said, you kidding all those guys out in left field that are there that drove in from all over the place? Or if I don't go to the, I don't go to the mound. You know what I should have done? I should have gone halfway at first and kind of teased him and then walked up to the mound. <laughs> that would have been fun. But you and I practiced in a gymnasium in Fort Worth the day before. And uh, I, I was not courageous enough to throw the knuckler for the, uh. For the ceremonial first pitch, but I was honored to do that. And immediately, instinctively, after I threw the pitch, I immediately turned and went to the Army dugout. And the head coach at the time met me there at the first baseline. And uh, we both took our hats off, uh, embraced, and he gave me the ceremonial coin. And then immediately I went over to my alma mater to Kirk Sarlos, who was waiting for me. And it was a neat deal. We went to dinner that night at J- Joe T. Garcia's. My parents were there. And um, I guess there were probably 150, 200 people there. And uh, I looked at one of the coaches that was standing there. And I kind of reflected for a moment. And he said, uh, you know what this is all about? And I said, no. And he said, uh, this is about being a good teammate. This isn't about being a, a great player. This is about being a good teammate. And you always remember your good teammates. It's a neat day.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. We talked about that earlier today about g- great teammates. It's uh, I still have so many friends, so many people I stay in contact with that I played with that weren't necessarily the star players, but they were just great teammates. And when I go to, you know, when I go back to school sometimes and see coach, I bring my great teammates with me to go see our coach. I don't, not necessarily the, the best players, and I think that's uh, something that people don't understand that there's more to being a good baseball player. There's more. There's more things to learn um, about being a baseball player that are important. Being a good teammate, um, representing the university or the country or whatever that you're playing for, and that the name on the front is more important than the name on the back. And we remember those guys. I mean, those are the guys that to this day you and i both stay in touch with
1: well you bring up a good point when you say people don't understand some people don't understand um uh, but but those of us that that do uh, it is i think it speaks to the heart of the game um it speaks to the history of the game it speaks to the traditions of the game uh, you and david you know are bringing to light you know some of the things that perhaps our game is missing today and that's those those types of relationships that, um, that are, were, were often nurtured, you know, the most elite teams in the, on the planet. And I learned this from Dr. Jack Thompson, uh, initially, although I'd, I'd heard it having served with alongside some, um, some incredible, uh, special operators. And I was not one of the special operators, but I got to support them for about a decade. And what they have in common is they know one another like no other. They care for one another like no other. Not coddle, therefore, they can challenge one another like no other. No care and challenge, and that's the the formula um, that all elite relationships and elite teams have in common that win consistently, not just not just one year. And so, you know, I'm reminded we were talking earlier today about relationships. the The army team. In 2005, we had some great players. We had players that were that were drafted and signed. Uh, Skyler Williamson, Cole White, number of other players that you know I can't think of them. Nick Hill with the Seattle Mariners, and we had a real magical year. But our team captain that year, um, and the way team captains are chosen is perhaps different in every program. You know, the players have a say, but ultimately it's the cult the coach's decision to approve or, you know, to select or nominate. And in our case at West Point, and I didn't go to West Point, but I had the privilege of serving there for a decade, the birthplace of leadership for our nation, really. Uh, Our players chose, they nominated our captains that year. And I remember when we went into the coach's locker room and sure enough, the coaches looked at all who was nominated and the players had chosen on their own a young man named tommy halverson there's a name you're never going to hear because tommy halverson was our bullpen catcher he was never going to play in a conference series unless it got out of hand but likely never going to play he was but he was the first guy there he was the last guy to leave he was tutoring his teammates in the barracks in at West Point, he was constantly, you know, in the weight room. He was the first guy on the bag, to, you know, to pick him up, uh, to pick up, you know, equipment, whatever it was. And and the players recognized at the leadership laboratory called West Point, the forty-seven month developmental experience, that that was the leader. That, that that he wasn't the guy that was leading off, and you know, behind the plate, he was in our he was in our bullpen getting our. And Tommy Halverson still on active duty today. I think he's a major in the army. And, uh, you know, when they have their reunions, everyone's going to want to be with Tommy Halverson because he was such a great teammate. And I, I, I really, I recall the moment when the players chose our bullpen catcher as their team captain. And I thought they get it, they get it. Yeah. They're, they're, they're choosing Tommy for all the right reasons.
0: Yeah. That's a cool story. I, that reminds me, it just reminded me of a player that I represented from, UTA named Mark Lowe and you know I got a call from his college coach to come see him he was going to be a guy who was probably going to get drafted and I went and saw Mark Lowe pitch and you know he, he looked the part he was still in mid 90s and but what I noticed the most was as soon as the game was over he went and grabbed a rake and started working on the mound while well, a lot of other guys were over there talking to their girlfriends or just kind of being lazy or trying to stall until somebody else grabs a rake Mark Lowe the best pitcher on the team went and grabbed a rake and started working on the mound because you know after those games I mean it takes a good 30 minutes to to get that field ready for the next day and that was the thing I noticed about Mark Lowe and I represented Mark Lowe his entire career played 10 years in the big leagues and a number of years in the minor leagues but that was the one thing that I noticed this guy went out there ready to work and I noticed how his teammates treated him. They loved the guy.
1: You know, once a year, the All Blacks rugby team come to the Anderson Rugby Complex along the banks of the mighty Hudson River at West Point, and they train. And what they're training, they train character. They train behavior. And they're arguably one of the most physically talented teams of any sport, the All Blacks rugby team. Um, but they're training behavior in, you know, when I speak as part of, you know, our company Sideline Leadership, I talk in the area of character reps, just like physical reps. But a physical rep is, develops you physically. We have to practice to play that game. No matter what sport it is, you have to practice physically. And a physical rep develops you, obviously, physically. But it's, all, it's not always the right time to do a physical rep. We have to rest. We have to recover. We may be nursing an injury or, but a character rep on the other hand develops your character and is always the right thing to do. And when the all blacks would come to West Point, I would often go down and kind of observe them from afar and watch how they behaved. And one of the things that they, their traits on among their team is first of all, they know one another like no other, they care for one another. Therefore they can challenge one another in that order. Average teams, by the way, have it just the opposite, Frito. I'm in a position of authority. I'm the best player. Therefore, I can tell you what to do, and I'm going to act like I care for you, and I'm going to pretend to know you at the annual Christmas party. That's how average, that's how by the majority of teams behave. But elite teams have it just the opposite. They know one another, care for one another, then they can challenge one another. And the All Blacks, part of their character, their behavior training is they're never above the broom. That's what they say. They're the first on the broom, meaning when they're done with a practice or a contest, they're the first ones on the rake, on the broom, cleaning up, sweeping up. And they all elite teams have that in common. And that's how they're able to win consistently over and over and over again is because they've repped behavior and they've practiced it and they call out poor behavior. And our game, baseball, you know, has such a long history and, you know, karma has a way of you know, the ball tends to find you and it always pays you back. And our, our game has such a long tradition and such a history that, that it rewards great behavior. And the year that I coached at West Point was a remarkable one, remarkable one in that, that George Steinbrenner, when he was alive, he financed the entire army baseball team to come to train with the New York Yankees every year for for 10 or 12 days over spring break. And he covered everything from soup to nuts. And he didn't want anybody to to know about that. He didn't want credit for any of that. He just did it as his way of serving. And I never met George Steinbrenner, but he had evidently gone to a military high school at some point in his life, somewhere around West Point. But uh, the one year that I Uh, recall the most was we, we finished practice early and we're training right alongside the Yankees and the the big league teams over at the big ballpark, but the, you know, single A, double A, triple A, they're all right there in little, you know, the four leaf clover ballparks in Florida. And we finished early. It's funny. I remember the sidebar. Bucky Dent was like standing right on the other side of a chain link fence. I'm like, oh, there's Bucky Dent and we're, (laughs) we're, we're practicing. But we, we finished early. So we had about 15, 20 minutes. And I walked over to where I think the single A, may have been high A team was practicing. And there were wooden bleachers. And I just kind of sat there on the wooden bleachers for a moment. I was by myself. No one else was around. And they're all in Yankee pinstripes. And the coach, who I don't recall, had them all lined up at home plate. And he said, okay, gentlemen, today we're going to... We're going to practice home run trots. And as soon as he uttered those words, the body language of these young 18 to 25 year olds, I'm guessing, who have underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes, meaning part of the brain that's responsible for emotions and decision making, they start, you know, kind of moving around like, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to make this all about me. And they're kind of rehearsing what they're going to do. And then the coach says, we're going to do this three times. Now, you're representing an organization that's won 27 World Championships. You are part of this organization, and we expect you to one day hit a home run. And when you do hit a home run, you have certain implied tasks that are associated with that home run. The first one is we're not here to show up the opponent, a worthy opponent, who is also professional baseball player. We just did our job and now we have some implied tasks. We've conducted the specific task very well. We hit a home run. Now we've got some implied tasks, how we're going to run the bases. First base coach is going to be there. He's going to have his hand out. You're going to shake his hand. You're going to touch all the bases. You're not going to look at the pitcher. Uh, You're going to look at second base. You're going to get to second base. We're not going to slow down. We're going to run at a a decent speed. We're going to touch them all. And then we're going to come back and, and we're going to celebrate, but we're going to celebrate mentally grounded. And these are, these are my words. This is something that I took from this experience that they celebrated mentally grounded on the ground and with their teammates. I say on the ground because all you have to do is Google celebration injuries and you'll know what that means now. Mm-hmm. You can see that everywhere. I, I When I talk with football coaches around the country and even the SEC and all the way down to the D3 level and JUCO level, I say, hey. You better be practicing how you're going to celebrate. So the first time they did these practice home run trots, they didn't have a bat. They didn't have a ball. Uh, the first time they did it, they swung, you know, dramatically and bounced around the, the bases and, you know, hit their chest. And there was a coach at first, there was a coach at third, and there was a coach standing behind the pitcher's mound talking to them the whole time. You're a New York Yankee. You're representing an organization that's been here for however many long years this may be your first home run. This is not your last home run. This is a worthy opponent. Get around the bag, get back in to celebrate your teammates. You did your job. Represent this organization. And by the third time, and they did it three times. At first, I thought this was you know kind of silly, but then I got it at the end. The third time, their demeanor, their body language was completely different. They were training them through behavioral reps of how to be a professional how to represent an organization that's much bigger than they are, that they are privileged to be a part of, and that they are going to serve and work in honorably. And by the third rep, these guys were running around the bases with completely different demeanor. And I watched young men, 18 to 22, all the way to 25, I guess, um, develop before my very eyes, not physically, but behaviorally. I thought that was an interesting leadership laboratory. Now I understood the Yankee way. And you know I'm not a big Yankee fan, but I certainly respect the Yankee way. And no one perhaps did that better than Derek Jeter.
0: You're right. And it's fitting that uh, the guy who just hit his 60th home run yesterday, Aaron Judge, when you watch this guy hit a home run, he lays his bat down, runs around the bases, and high fives his teammates. And doesn't do any of the uh, showboating, which I know you know that I'm not a fan of. I know you're not a fan of either. But, uh, I mean, Aaron Judge is a true professional. And and I think that uh, um, what we saw this past week, I I posted a video of a kid playing for Team USA. Great player. He had a great player. He had a big home run and had, you know, in my opinion, just my opinion, an over... Zealous celebration! Um, it uh, the video went viral, I believe. I don't even know what that means, Flawy, but somebody said congratulations to me. I said I'm not on here for viral videos, I'm trying to teach these kids to respect the game. Um, it got a lot of a lot of attention. Even the coach um, of Team USA um, sent me uh, a couple messages and. I don't know. I, I think people kind of misunderstand what I feel about it. It's just that I, exactly like you said, the Yankees taught their guys. You know, this is, you know, that guy on that mound is a professional as well. Um, there's really, in my mind, no reason to try and embarrass that guy or show him up because you did your job. And your job is to try and, you know, be successful when you're hitting a baseball. And sometimes you hit a homer. and doesn't mean you have to act a fool. Um, and I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to read this tweet to you and I I wanted to get your thoughts on what this means to you. Mm -hmm. Um, This tweet has since been deleted by the author. It says, to every man and woman who has served or is serving our great country, today's under 18 World Cup gold medal was for you. You would be proud to stand side by side these 20 young men. They defended their country today with honor, dignity, and respect. Hashtag, well, then there's American flag, hashtag for glory. And when I saw that tweet, I was like, I don't, I have to ask you, um, because of of your military background and your history, um, you know, what a tweet like this means to you. Because to me, it's a slap in the face when there are men and women out there risking their lives for our country to keep us safe keep our you know, our way of life. And to compare an eighteen year old team winning a baseball game is defending our country, I really thought it was obviously in poor taste because it's since been deleted. What did, what would you what do you think about when people say things like this?
1: Well, it's 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 a little they represented our country, uh, certainly. They were chosen to participate in an eighteen under League, I shouldn't say league team to represent the United States because of uh, extraordinary talent. I I'm making an assumption there. I don't know, other than the watching the one man hit the one young man hit a hit a home run who looked like really a great player, um, and they represented the country, whether they represented the country honorably or not. That's you know for others. Uh, to judge, but defending the country is, is a lot different than representing the country, uh, in, in the, in the Olympics and, uh, defending the country is, is, is very different than that. And when you hear football players, you know, specifically football players talking about, you know, this is war. Well, it's just, you, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Maybe to them it is, but those of us that have served understand that the differences and, uh, I would love to work one day with that ball club or the Olympic team. You know, I was in the '84 Olympic trials, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm—I was probably one of the only ones that was involved in ROTC. Uh, there was only one ROTC member at TC that played baseball, so I have to say I probably was the only one uh, in the '84 Olympic trials. And I remember thinking that I'm not playing for myself right now; I'm playing for the opportunity to get the. Maybe get the chance. It was naively because I didn't have the talent to make the squad. That was the squad that had um, players that you would you would recognize. I think Pete and Cavilia was on that team, and um, who else? Robin Ventura and Mark McGuire. But <laughs> I think cool. two players got selected: a pitcher and a shortstop out of our little Olympic tryout. But I, I I'm I'm glad they won. It's good did they win honorably? I don't know. I mean, uh, there, there are men and women in the, the military who win, but haven't served honorably. That's why we have dishonorable discharges. Um, you know, did they, did they serve honorably? Well, well that's for, you know, others to decide. They certainly won and, you know, congratulations to them winning the, the gold medal. Um, when I saw that one video, I thought, wow, what a huge opportunity, a blind spot perhaps for him to go through a leader development experience that you and I perhaps one day are going to put together where we can actually train behavior. And one of the second and third order effects of poor behavior on the fields of friendly strife, as Douglas MacArthur said, um, you you empower your opponent uh, many times and you can really lower yourself in, in below the the thing that you've just won just by your behavior how you behaved after success and you've got to actually practice and rep how you're going to behave when you're successful and you also have to practice how you're going to behave when you fail our game is one obviously the cliche's real it's a game of failure uh, I use videotapes, short clips, when I go out and and work with coaches. And one of them I use is a, a game, a baseball game between Texas A&M University and Indiana, played in Austin. And one of the great, arguably one of the best players in the country, uh, drafted very high, still playing pro ball, uh, struck out. And it was a poor at bat. And I've got the video clip. It was a poor at bat, and he puts his head down kind of slams his bat the catcher drops the ball he does not run to first and he's almost literally dragging his bat back to the dugout well this is one of the best players in college baseball and he's about to pass a so-called a so-called family member a teammate and he's sitting on some intelligence that he just gathered through that experience that at bat that he could pass on to his teammate his family member and instead because we haven't practiced and repped how we're going to behave when we fail, uh, he just walks right by his teammate. Now let's look at the the second and third order effect of that behavior on the pitcher. That pitcher for Indiana, he may have just thrown a pitch that he's not capable of ever throwing again. And he's looking at the best player arguably top five players in the country, dragging his bat back to the dugout. Suddenly, that pitcher may think, well, well, gosh, if I just struck him out, maybe I'm capable of throwing that same pitch again. And now you've given him more confidence. Our game is one of confidence and experiences. And, and now that you've, you've empowered that opponent with confidence. And one thing about our game is it'll – It'll pay you back very quickly if you don't behave uh, honorably in success and in failure. Um, now, there are times where, you know, we lose our temper and I'm looking up at the picture now of Robin Ventura and Nolan Ryan here in my office, the iconic photo. And, you know, we think of Bo Jackson breaking the back bat over his knee and um, but we can use baseball as a leadership laboratory for life. One thing about baseball, those those of us that love the game so much is it stays with you forever. And you you wonder if you, if you did, you know, very few players can say, I know that I played the very best that I possibly could. Uh, Derek, Derek is probably one of those that that said he probably did. Uh, But when Lou Gehrig said, Today, I consider myself, you know, the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I believe he meant that. He, uh, he got to play the game at a very high level, played it with extraordinary behavior and humility, played it honorably. And it's a blind spot for our nation's pastime, which makes it a great opportunity. And here's the other, you know, those that are listening, they don't really, many don't know you personally and if they knew you if they knew your heart and they knew what a good man you are that they would understand that it's beyond the shigon videos that it's you're you're much more deeper than of a person than that you care deeply about these young men you care deeply about the game you care deeply about the young women that are trying to play our game and once someone really knows you and gets understands who you are and how you think and how thoughtful you are and how authentic and relentless and selfless you really are, Jeff Fry, th- th- they may understand you a little bit better. That's hard to capture in a, a tweet, but for those of us that know you and have I've known you now for well since 2005, um, I know what kind of person you are. That's why we're doing a podcast today. That's why we're going to do our our baseball academy leader development experience using baseball as a, a pathway to develop young men of character who not only win in baseball, but win in life. That's why we're going to do that. And we're going to draw from some of the things that you and I both experienced playing junior college baseball, but also our experiences, you in the major leagues and myself in the army and myself getting the opportunity to coach at the division one level as an assistant baseball coach where I'm required by law to tell you we swept Navy.
0: (laughs) Well, that is, uh, Thank you very much for saying that. I'm trying not to get choked up, but, uh, you know, my heart's in the right place and not everybody, unfortunately on social media understands that, but, uh, I won't be deterred in my mission. <laughs> um, you know that, and, and I want to talk just a little bit about what we've been working on with this, uh, baseball fundamental skills, character development and leadership camp that you and I are, well, come this Monday, we're going to meet with, uh, Bartlesville high school coach and I think athletic director to try and set up the first one of these. And, you know, it's taken from the air it out camp kind of the ideas from the air it out football quarterback and uh, receivers camp that you've been working on for a long time with coach Alan Wardus, um, your golf partner this next week in the Hill blast when me and Colonel Donahue will be challenging you fellas up there in Bartlesville, Oklahoma That's going to be a good time, but uh, I mean, I'm really excited because when I filled in for you that day, or those two days, two of the longest days of my life, by the way, um, at the aired-out camp where you were hanging out in Vegas with Godby, um, (laughs) I uh, I really noticed and had people coming up to me that I'd never met, and I said, "Yeah, this is really nice, you know, really cool deal." And they're like, "Yeah, but it's not the football; it's the other stuff. It's the leadership stuff. It's the teaching these young men and, and um, about character and leadership and I, I think this these kids these days these teenagers we have these days need it more than ever and I, that's why I'm really excited um, to be putting this together with you there's nobody in the world I would rather do it with um, um, so I'm really excited hopefully we can figure some things out this next week and and schedule one of these events because I'm pretty sure it will be well attended.
1: You know, one of the things that I get to speak to a lot of major universities and, and fortune 500 companies, you know, Dell, for example, uh, in Austin, I just finished a big event um, for hub insurance and I'll be in Houston next week at Cadence bank. And you know, what I realized when I fi- – and I didn't intend to serve a career in the Army, 25 years in the Army. I mean, I wanted to be involved in baseball, baseball, baseball. I mean, that was my life. I wanted to serve, get out, and then go be a baseball coach. Well, I ha- ended up having to get an opportunity to do that, but only later in my career. But instead, perhaps there was another reason um, that I was led and drawn to stay in the military. It was to perhaps build – and learn uh, how to teach the game, how to teach behavior, the experiences with those unique, most elite teams on the planet, so that one day perhaps we could do this. And, you know, I'll tell you, at Notre Dame, I had the privilege of working with Notre Dame a few years ago and Brian Kelly, who's now at LSU. Uh, we had just finished, I was working with another company and we just finished looking at some reports and some of the players. And Brian Kelly said to me, uh, um, would you address the team, the football team? And I said, absolutely. I said, when would you like to do that? And he said, 20 minutes. Well, um, I had not started the company sideline leadership yet. Um, I was, so we're, we're literally walking down the stairways and I hand Brian Kelly, my, my phone and I put my hand on the play like a champion sign. I go, I've I've obviously got to stop. he goes, I understand it's just me and Brian Kelly. And he takes his camera, my phone, and takes a picture of me by that sign. The next thing I know, I'm standing in front of the Notre Dame football team. And so I rambled on for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes about, you know, how some of the most elite teams on the planet behave and to win. And when I finished and I walked off, Brian Kelly looked at me and he goes, That's what you need to be doing. And I thought, wow, no one's ever said that to me before. So since 2016, I've been working with, corporations and athletics programs and athletics directors and head football coaches and all around the country, some in the SEC, some in the Big 12, uh, all across the country. And it's a blind spot for most coaches. They simply don't know. They know the X's and O's. But here are three questions that the most elite teams on the planet ask when they are recruiting, when they are assessing, selecting, and then going to develop the most elite members of the world to be on the most elite teams in the world. They ask three questions. Can they do it? That's the first question. Are they tactically, are they physically able to do it? Can they do it? The next question is, will they do it? Do they have the discipline to do it? And then the third question is perhaps the most important. Will others do it with them? Can they do it? Will they do it? Will others do it with them? And if there's ever a hesitation or a no. No matter how talented that person is, they simply can't serve on that elite team. They can go serve in the big army. They can go play for somebody else, but they can't be part of the most elite teams on the planet. They may be physically able to do it. Maybe they're disciplined enough to do it, but if others will not do it with them, if there's a no to any of those questions, they're not selected. And that formula obviously has worked, and but what's at stake is a heck of a lot more than a national championship or a Friday night football game or even an 18-under gold medal. What's at stake is the our nation's freedom, and we're not going to play with that with these guys who are among the. And by the way, there's no one even close on the planet than these guys. They are extraordinary, and I was I was honored, privileged to get to serve with them for a brief. Period of time, and you're going to be playing golf here and next week with one of the the ones that uh, probably one of the best in the in the country. Um, not at golf. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm going uh, to said it, that. It, he was a green beret and uh, just a great. He was a, a great guy, and then and then to get to go up to West Point and and teach uh, and coach and serve as one of the directors up there. That there has to be another reason why all of that happened. And perhaps it is bringing us to this opportunity to work in a game that we love most in teaching character and baseball uh, in the game that we love so much. Because eventually you're going to take your last at bat, whether you're Aaron Judge, Jeff Fry, or myself, you're going to take your last at bat. And what you're going to be remembered by Some stats, yes, but mostly is whether or not you were a good teammate and how you made others feel when you were around them. Did others do it with you? And that stays with you for a lifetime. And I I found that to be a blind spot once I retired from the Army in 2012, which creates a great opportunity for those who are interested in not just winning one gold medal, but sustaining a program that will consistently produce young men of character and young women of character who win, not only on the fields of friendly strife, but also in life. And you know, MacArthur. I should give the whole quote. MacArthur said, "On the fields of friendly strife, are sown the seeds that, on other days, on other fields, will bear will bear the fruits of victory." Uh, Douglas MacArthur, uh, pretty re- remarkable. Leader in our nation, and I'm I'm sitting here with two baseball cards in front of me, Frito, that uh, mean a lot to me. They're so unique, and I just sent them to uh, these two baseball cards to Johnny Caraba. If you've been, if you've been to Caraba's restaurant, the original Caraba's in Houston, Texas, you know what a great place that is. Uh, and Johnny Caraba is a great man of character who just delivers not only excellent product, but he, he cares deeply about those members of his team. He knows them. He cares for them. Therefore he can challenge them without any issues. And Johnny hosted Miss Beth and I for our 33rd wedding anniversary down in Houston a few weeks ago. And, you know, what do you get a guy like Johnny Caraba? Well, I'm sitting here in, in my little home office here with a lot of baseball memorabilia around me. I'm looking at, you know, a picture here of George Bush and Nolan Ryan and George Bush senior, uh, in, on my, in front of me framed. And then of course the Nolan Ryan, then Robin Ventura photo. And then all the baseballs that we had from our, from our run, uh, at, at army to include, uh, our first win in the NCAA tournament ever for army. When we beat South Alabama, uh, eight to five, and then we were eliminated by Auburn, but we got beat three to two, by the way, a, by Florida state on a home cook call that I'm still not over. I was a Lieutenant Colonel at the time coaching first base. And anybody who was at, was at that game. There was a, a double hit down the line and we had two runners on and the ball was six inches fair and they called it foul. Oh, Now I'm a Lieutenant Colonel active duty and I'm coaching first base. I coached first base during the games and I had the outfielders during the, during the week and threw some BP I'm left-handed and when they called it foul, you could hear the crowd just go completely quiet. And Florida State is a place where they don't get quiet. Too, and it was sold out. It was game one. We were the number four seed. Florida State was the number one seed. So I took my hat off, which was the signal to the head coach that the call was missed. And then I walked out to beyond first base and straddled the chalk line and just had my hands on my knees with my, head, my hat off and my left hand. And then I slowly got up and walked back to the coaching box. This is a funny story. And if I would have said one word, I would have been tossed. And I would have been on the flight back and no, no telling what would have happened. I probably wouldn't have made colonel in the army. But I did discipline and I didn't say a word. But after about three innings, there was a player on our team named Mylon Dinga. He ended up getting drafted by the Angels and Mylon Dingo was the guy and every team has a guy like this who cannot figure out how to get back to first base after taking a lead when there's a throw over to first base they get their feet all tangled up and you know baseball players typically have great rhythm they typically you know ex- except for some pitchers but mo- mostly baseball guys have great rhythm and they have great you know they can dance they can they're very comfortable in their in their skin well, Mylon Dingle was very uncomfortable in his st- in his skin when he took a lead at first base, getting back to the bag. And we get picked at first. And I mean, we're cleanly picked. And Blue goes, safe. <laughs> and of course, the crowd goes nuts. So I kind of walk out and kind of have my head down, uh, kind of towards Blue where he can, you know, the ump where he can hear me. And I, I say, well, I go, that's helpful. But we're about halfway where we need to be. <laughs> And, uh, and after the game, we got beat three to two on a, uh, an unearned run. And the coach from Auburn who was in the stands came down to me and he said, I don't know how you didn't lose your mind on that call. And I said, well, I, I simply could not. First of all, what good of that would that have done? And then it would have been, then it would have been about me, an active duty Lieutenant Colonel, you know, arguing calls and getting thrown out of the game. So, um. It was it was tough. But I I did tell the umpire later again, I said, you know, these young men are going to be soon deployed abroad, defending your freedom to make a better call than that. (laughs) And uh, he just said, I know, I know. (laughs) So he knew he missed it. And the the game was on TV. So I can't imagine what it was like to see that on television uh, and see that that call was missed so badly. But, you know, that's our game. And uh, love our game, but uh, back to these two gentlemen, these two baseball cards. So Johnny Caraba, you know what am I going to? How am I going to thank Johnny Caraba besides a handwritten thank you note? Well, I sent him two baseball cards. This is the, they're both by Bowman. This is the 1952 Larry Yogi Berra, 1952 Yogi Berra card. It's number, it's number two. Our number, it was number one in the series. It was the number one card. And I also sent a player that you may not be familiar with. Also 1952 card, Bobby Brown. Now why Bobby Brown and Yogi Barrow? Well, these two New York Yankees insisted on being roommates whenever they traveled with the New York Yankees. I met both of them, by the way. In 1972, the New York Yankees came to play the West Point Cadets. I, my dad was stationed at West Point. And my dad went to college with Jerry Grody at Trinity University in San Antonio. And Jerry was the catcher for the New York Mets. So Jerry took me in the locker room and I got to meet Willie Mays back then. Folks may remember Willie finished his career. He finished his career with the New York Mets. And so I'm in the locker room, Ed Crane Pool. You know, we won't go through the whole roster, but uh, the manager of the Mets back in 72 was Yogi Berra. So I met Yogi. It was fascinating. And I was just a little boy. I was seven years old or something. And in 2018, I met Bobby Brown, who was Yogi Bear's roommate when they were on the road. And Bobby Brown got up and said a few words at our TCU baseball banquet in Fort Worth, Texas. And his first words were, my comments will be very brief because I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> then. He said, You know, Yogi Berra was reading comic books in our room, and I was reading medical journals. So, what do you know about these two New York Yankees besides winning World Series and being roommates on the road? Well, Bobby Brown hit 279, very similar to what you hit when you played in the majors. What'd you hit, Frito? 290? Allegedly. Yeah, well, I think you're on record. Your baseball card says 290, I think. But Bobby Brown was reading medical journals. Yogi Berra served in the U.S. Navy. Bobby Brown served in the U.S. Army and became a doctor, a cardiologist, a renowned cardiologist who saved many lives in World War II. So here, two great baseball players who both served in our military are insisting on being roommates. And Bobby Brown passed away in 2021. He was 96. I think I met him when he was 93. And so I sent those two baseball cards, Bowman, 1952 Yogi Berra and Bobby Brown to Johnny Caraba, who loves baseball. And I wrote him a a letter and said, this is why these two cards are being sent to you. And he wrote back immediately. He said, today I had lunch with my father. Johnny Caraba's father, still alive in Houston. Today I had lunch with my father, and we talked for hours about the game that we love so much, baseball. It's just like the movie says, baseball, Ray. Baseball will always have baseball. It is what endures during times of uncertainty. Baseball, Ray. Interesting.
0: You just reminded me of, you know, it, it, I really enjoy doing nice things for people. I love sending, whenever I see things on social media and people reach out to me, I'll say, hey, you know, can I send your son or daughter an autographed picture or can I do something nice? It just makes me feel good. I don't know why uh, more people don't do it, but it makes me feel good. I don't want anything from it. Just, I want to do something nice for people and being that we're, you know, almost a year from the last hill blast that we played in Bartlesville that's coming up this week. The I golf remember, tournament, yeah. Yeah, I remember going up there last year and, uh, Colonel Donahue was, um, showing me all his memorabilia and he had, uh, you know, big hockey guy. He's actually from Boston and, um, you know, big Boston Bruins fan. He's showing me all these things. He's got this Bobby or stick and he's got this. And I was like, well, where's your, where's your Bobby or Jersey? He goes, Oh, I don't have one. And I said, well, now you have one. He goes, what do you mean? I said, just so happens that when I played for the Red Sox, we had a lot of these charity golf tournaments and I would go to these events and, you know, buy a, uh, Dan Marino Jersey or, a." I bought so many different jerseys, uh, Grant Hill, uh, Terrell Davis. I bought so many jerseys and hockey sticks, and I was not a big hockey fan, and I just so happened to buy a Bobby Orr jersey at one of these. I think it was a Tim Nairing golf tournament, and uh, I knew that that jersey would mean so much more to Colonel Donahue than it does to me. It's sitting in my closet at home. It's a nice keepsake, but it really doesn't have much meaning to me and uh, I remember you were getting ready to come to Fort Worth. And I said, and maybe go down to Austin see Jamie Frazier. And I said, "Hey, come by my house. I want to give you something for um, Colonel Donahue. And you came by the house and when you went back home, you delivered it to him, and he made a video. You made a video of him putting it on. Uh, it was so cool. and I just know that you know, it means so much more to John Donahue than it ever would have meant to me. And I know you do things like that all the time, just like you did with Johnny Caraba. And and maybe that's why, you know, all the stars have aligned and somehow Kurt Godby called me one day and asked me if I'd be interested in helping Josh Holden. And that's how I got to meet you.
1: Well, baseball brought us together, my friend. It's gonna keep us together. And you know you know why we love that is because you know, dopamine Dopamine is a natural occurring chemical that we get when we feel good about something. When we have a character rep, we feel good when we write a thank you note, when we do something like you just described with Donahue, uh, it gives us a a hit of dopamine and it's addictive, that, that chemical dopamine. And when we rep behavior, when we practice good behavior, we get a hit of dopamine and Nowadays, dopamine is, is being manufactured through social media. People, young, young people, minds that are underdeveloped still, that prefrontal cortex uh, is still underdeveloped. It won't f- fully develop for young women until about 24, or 25, and for young men about 25 to as late as 27. They, they get hits of dopamine from, from likes from getting likes do I got 100 likes do I have and so they're getting a hit of dopamine from something that's really not real it's a uh, something that's not tangible and not 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 long lasting and in our day uh, we've got our hits from dopamine, you know, when we grew up learning how to play the game, whether it was, you know, for me in San Antonio, while dad was in Vietnam or wherever it was in, in Germany, or even in junior college, and we have to talk about our junior college days, Frito. That's coming but, up, buddy. That's coming up next. <laughs> but, so, you know, where do we get those hit of those hits of dopamine? And I would suggest that perhaps the more we rep character, the more we train how to behave when we're successful, celebrating mentally grounded on the ground with your teammates, that there is a competitive edge that will allow us to achieve unbelievable results that we're not even aware of. And the training that I had, you know, in the military and those that I trained with, and then the opportunity to coach and teach up at West Point has really, hopefully, uh, and you and I getting brought together by a young man who played the game extraordinarily well, you know, maybe we'll have an opportunity here to to serve uh, our nation, our states, you know, in another way uh, through baseball. So I see David has something that, uh, what's want, yeah. to bring on.
0: I had, uh, Jeff and I talk quite a bit about the responsibility and the role of the adults involved with these kids, whether it's recruiting or coaching or just parents. And I love the phrase behavioral reps. I think that's a phenomenal, I mean, it puts it right in perspective in your business right now or, and, or in your past as either a coach or a behavioral leader. What message can you give to parents and coaches out there that are in front of our audience? Because our audience now is 42 countries and we're in, we're really immersed in the grassroots as well as the front offices, but a message to the adults in terms of behavioral reps that are in front of these kids that can give them that hit of dopamine in another way.
1: Well, you know, as the father of three daughters, all of which were athletes, they played the game of lacrosse, a game you're familiar with, David, up in the Northeast. We are all susceptible, and I can remember losing my mind, having an out-of-body experience as a father of a, you know, all-American lacrosse player, <laughs> losing my mind, um, and at a, at a game based on calls that I thought were putting our players in danger, and I had to physically get up and leave because I could feel myself not being—I could feel my amygdala, another part of the brain that can easily get hijacked, um, and that's another term that I learned from Dr. jet J A T Jat Jatt Thompson at Horizon Performance. Um, my amygdala was obviously being hijacked, but when I when I teach now, um, I talk to parents about Christmas trees, David. So let's assume we have a junior. Uh, they're playing right now, junior, let's call it football. They're in their fall season right now of junior in high school. Well, you've got two Christmas trees left with that junior. That's it. And once they leave home, they will have spent nearly 90% of the time that they're going to spend with you in an average lifetime. So those that may be listening now that have children in the ninth grade, you've got 10, 11, you know, you've got four Christmas trees, three, you know, earlier, you can do the math. If you've got a senior, you've got one Christmas tree left. How do you want that Experience that we know is either going to end or go to play in college, which is rare. The best thing that we can do as parents when our children, sons and daughters are competing in athletics, or even in the band, or in anything, in dance, is, and this happens to be true, is when they're when we pick them up from practice or pick them up after a game or they come home from a game that we watched, is to say this. We sure love watching you play. That's it. Cody Hodges, who led the nation in passing for Texas Tech University right after Cliff Kingsbury, Sonny Cumbie. Cody Hodges was a remarkable athlete, had a twin brother. They both were incredible athletes out of West Texas. And Cody tells the story coming home one day after Texas Tech got beat. Mike Leach was his coach. And Cody Hodges comes home, and before he can even get out of the car and shut the door, his dad is breaking down the game for him. And Cody puts his hand up and says, Dad, I've got 11 coaches at Texas Tech breaking down the game for me. When I come home, I, I'm not here for to see another coach. I'm here to be with my dad. And from that moment on, Cody's father, who's no longer with us, passed away two Thanksgivings ago. He fundamentally changed how he interacted with Cody and Cody had a cup of coffee with the Tennessee Titans. But so many times we get caught up in, you know, the winning, the behaving, the scoring that we get, we, we, our amygdala gets hijacked, a part of the brain that's responsible for anger and frustration, fight or flight, that we forget that we are so happy just to see them compete. We sure enjoy watching you play. Coach Wardus always says, after you tell them that, then ask them, "Do you want a cherry lime soda or a Coke icy?" <laughs> That's it. That's all you say. You know, when you look at Archie Manning, you know, during the recruiting of, you know, his sons, he would fall asleep during the meetings. He was not going to get involved in that. Um, and I I know a little bit. Co- you know, Archie Manning and I have talked on the phone a couple of times uh, when I was up at West Point and. Stan Brock, who played in the NFL for a long time, was offensive lineman and, and he would talk about how what a great leader of of men Archie Manning was. It doesn't surprise me that he's raised, you know, young men and probably had a hand in raising grandsons as well, young men of character who not only win in football, but also in life. But that's the best thing we can say, David, is we sure enjoy watching you play. Most parents most parents, when their sons or daughters walk in the door, they ask two very predictable questions How was your homework? And do you have, uh, how was your day? And do you have any homework? Those are the questions. How was your day? Do you have any homework? And for boys, 16, 15 on, they're going to mumble. They're always mumbling. And, and by the way, now they've got a $1,000 device that belongs to you in their hand and they're looking at it. And so you go, How was your day? And they go, Do you have any homework? Okay. And, and their day wasn't fine and they do have homework. And so the other parent comes home and says, Hey, how was David's day? And you know, the mom or dad or stepmom or grandparent, whoever it is says, well, he said it was fine. Does he have any homework? Well, he said, no. And then we yell upstairs to David three or four times. He doesn't answer. So one parent or grandparent goes, storms up the stairs and opens up the door and there's David sitting there in his bed with headphones on doing homework. And we say, hey, we've been calling you for dinner for the last 20 minutes. I thought you said you didn't have any homework. That's what you told your mom. Well, he says, dad, this is just you know, French vocab. Well, that's homework. Now you get your rear end downstairs and let's have a nice family dinner. Well, that started because we asked the wrong questions. When they come home and we see our young daughters and young men come home after practice or after school, whatever it is, we should not ambush them with, how was your day? Do you have any homework? They've got to go to the bathroom, they're hungry, they're tired, and they're on that $1,000 device that belongs to you that you should have 24-hour access to. And so we have to frame the conversation, David, a little differently than we have in the past. We have to think, we have to be situationally aware, we have to be self-aware, and then we have to take an action. Those three things, situationally aware, self-aware, and then we have to take an action different from the average, which represents the majority. And we have to understand that they're, they got to go to the bathroom, they're hungry, they're tired, and they're on a thousand dollar device that they're trying to catch up on that, trying to get a hit of dopamine. And the best thing we could say at that time is, I'm so glad to see you. Nowadays, that happens to be really true. I'm so glad to see you. Take a few minutes to go to the bathroom, get something to eat, get a little rest, catch up on your phone and then let's have a conversation. That fundamentally changes that interaction completely. But that takes discipline on a parent or whoever's in the house, household, you know, running the the home. That takes discipline, it takes a little bit of practice, it pl- takes a little bit of training. And hard easy to say on a podcast, really hard to do when you're in the the heat of it all. Cuz the default is, how was your day? Do you have any homework? which are going to get you the same two responses that we gave our parents when we were asked those two questions. So how many Christmas trees do you have left? That's one thing to take note of. And just know that once they leave home, they win this thing. The the buzzer goes off and they win this thing. They leave the home and once they leave home, especially young men, they have spent 90% of the time they're going to spend in an average lifetime with the family, however that's described. So there are some you know great books that you can you can look at that I you know anchor too often when I'm doing some of the training and speaking, but uh, it's 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 something you really have to to work at. And how we communicate, how we communicate is remarkable. I'll tell you a story. Do we have time for uh, David? How are we yeah, doing Lorena, on time? Yeah, yeah. I remember our our daughter um, when she graduated. She went to Texas A and M University, and now she part owner of a company called Rev gum. It's a sugar-free caffeinated chewing gum. That's it's this thing's taken off. In fact, it should be in every major league dugout. I mean, it's each piece of uh, gum is equivalent of one cup of coffee and it's sugar-free. And it was founded by a young man who my daughter went to high school with, went to the university of Texas. He was a diabetic, but, and so we wanted caffeine without sugar. Anyway, he, uh, she, our daughter was up in Chicago initially working for PepsiCo and it was a significant emotional event getting her in an apartment in Chicago. But we got her settled and Miss Beth and I flew back to the, the great state of Texas and our middle daughter, Annie, she sends a picture of her apartment, her first adult apartment. She's 22 at the time. Here's, here it is. I mean, it's, Bed is made, clothes are up, pictures are hung, all that stuff. She sends it on our family text, group text. And Miss Beth, who I love and adore, her immediate response on the family group text with the first photo that we get from Chicago was take a steamer to your dust ruffle. Now, right away, I'm thinking, oh man. That is not going to inspire further communication from Chicago. That, we, we we didn't intend to. And that's the other thing about the most elite guys, most elite teams on the planet. Their intentions do not matter. They either hit the snooze button or they did not. They, they make the decision the night before when they're going to get up. So when the alarm goes off, they turn and put their feet on the ground and get up. Their intentions don't matter. Only their actions do. Well, Miss Beth did not intend to have that type of communication or that effect on that family text. But what she wrote, the action, was could be detrimental to further communication. And so right away I had to come in and go, man, what a great room. I can't believe how, you know, how well organized it is. And I didn't even notice your dust ruffle was wrinkled. What is a dust ruffle anyway? But the, the point is we've got to be a little more Thoughtful, we got to be situationally aware, self-aware, and then take the appropriate action in our communication. So the best thing you can say, David, when they finish a practice or a play or whatever it is, is we sure enjoy watching you play. Period. That's it. And this next level thing, I love uh, Frito. You'll love this, Coach Wardus. He always, he always, when he talks to parents, he says this all the time, and he's exactly right. He said, you know, I get this all the time when we have our, you know, the air it out. Passing and receiving academy out of Abilene. You know, parents come up to us all the time. And, and David Thomas, who played in two Super Bowls, he works with the receivers. Cody Hodges works with the quarterbacks. And I, I teach the leadership character piece of this. And Fredo stands in for me when I'm not there. And, <laughs> um, you know, he's Coach Wardis says parents come up to him all the time and say, Hey, um, w- we want to play at the next level, this next level idea. We will play at the next level. You know, we'll get to the next level. What do we got to do to get to the next level? <laughs> Coach Ward says, "Next level. Your son's in the eighth grade. The next level for him is the ninth grade. <laughs> That's the next level for him. College? You're talking about college? No, 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 no. The next level is the ninth grade for him. And." Same thing if you're a you know, 10th grader. Next level is the 11th grader. And then Coach Ward says, you know, if you want to you know, play you know, college football, you, you got to do – it's a four-week process. You go down to an SEC game, get as close as you can to the field, listen to how they're communicating. Uh, I was in an SEC school one time in a position group, and I heard a coach were breaking down some film. And there was a recruit in the room with his parents, a recruit, a highly recruited guy, a name that you would recognize, who's going to play in the NFL within a year. And he's in there with his parents and this coach asked one of the players that's on the current team about a mistake he just made on the film. And the player got it wrong. And the coach said, and I'm in the back too, just observing. And the coach says, don't make me get ugly in front of company. And I thought, well, well, that's right there. You just lost that recruit. That means when, when those parents are not there, How are you going to treat this young man? Mm -hmm. Which for that coach and as a behavioralist, and I I think, okay, I I hopefully can work with this coach to teach him of the second, third order, not X's and O's. I don't care about that, but the behavioral piece of that, the second, third order effects of his communication that he just had in that room. But Coach Wardis talks about it's a four week process, you know, go to the SEC, a big 12 game, a D3, a D2 game, and listen to the sidelines, how they communicate with those young men. And then he jokingly says, you know, if you go to a D3 school, you go to a D3 football game, he said, you can, you can probably get on the sidelines and call a play at that level. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, now that we're talking about this, we might as well talk a little bit about JUCO, since uh, we both played a little JUCO baseball, me at uh, Carl Albert Junior College in Poto, Oklahoma, and you at Ranger Junior College um, and your uncle, was uh, Don Flowers was assistant coach when you were there, and is now enshrined in the Ranger Junior College Hall of Fame. Um, but man, you know, I didn't have many options, Flowey, out of high school. JUCO was the you know, it wasn't like I chose to go to JUCO instead of a D one or whatever. It was it was JUCO or bust. That was it for me. And and I was actually going to play basketball. Ended up playing little basketball and baseball. But, uh, you know, I think JUCO is a great avenue for kids, especially with the, the log jam of D1 schools with all this transfer portal stuff and the, and the, and the COVID stuff. But uh, let's talk a little bit about our JUCO experiences. I know you had, a, you know, at least, well, I guess, two guys that played in the major leagues off your JUCO team.
1: Yeah, we had three that I can name. Um one of them was the the great Ellis Burks and Ellis and I were both 17-year-old freshmen at Ranger Junior College together and we're very close to this day and in fact I was in I was in a tapioca field in Thailand in 1987 when uh, I was reading the the Army Times and you know sports guys uh, read the newspaper differently than normal guys. We read it from the back page and, uh, I'm, I'm reading it's 107 degrees in this tapioca field. And, um, I see that they've called up rookie sensation, Ellis Burks to the Red Sox. And man, I was so happy. And I hadn't had a shower in like three weeks now, you know, training in Thailand with the light infantry and, and to see my old teammate get called up. And Ellis and I just talked earlier this week. He's, he's doing great. Lives in, uh, Cleveland. The other guy that played uh, uh, on our team was Jimmy Morris from the movie, the rookie. Uh, he would later transfer at January. Uh, he only was there one semester. Uh, that's an interesting story for you. Oh, you
0: have uh, to tell the, the B story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Love that and, story. And the other one was Mike Smith who pitched for the Baltimore Orioles for a long time. Um, but there was a, you know, junior college is a great opportunity that a lot of folks look down on and don't realize how special those times are. And your story is a one in a million remarkable story, Jeff Fry. but there are so many more like yours. Ellis Burks is, is another one. And Jimmy Morris is another one. I mean, ended up coming up as a, you know, making a major league team at 35, the movie, the rookie. Um, but there was a sign on the weight room, a weight room at Ranger junior college. And David, you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, I was, Again, seventeen-year-old freshman. And in nineteen eighty-two, if you if a coach stenciled something on a piece of poster board, he meant it. I mean, it took you had to get a straight edge and you stenciled. And I had a Kodak disc little camera that I took a picture of this poster board. It was on the weight room at Ranger. It said now the weight room was had two by fours, you know, making a bench bench press. It had a boom box in the corner with aluminum foil. It had, you know, didn't yeah, have rusty, any matching, <laughs> had, had an old rusty universal machine with a can of WD-40 by it. And it had no door handle in the plywood door. So I mean, it was just a hole. So I I like to say it was the first 24 hour fitness in America <laughs> and you could go anytime. And this poster board said, welcome to Ranger junior college. We want you to be happy here. And I thought, wow, that's nice. And it said, if there's something you want, that we haven't got, we'll show you how to get along without it. <laughs> and True. it it was it was a, a great experience. I played one year of JUCO ball there, and uh, <clears throat> some days I wish I would have played two years there because <clears throat> Ellis and I were both such you know young. Physically immature, but certainly mentally immature as well. I think Ellis weighed about 160 pounds, 162 pounds, something like that, in junior college. I was like a buck 45. And, uh, you know, Ellis ended up, at one point, Ellie was one of the only major leaguers to hit a home run in every major league ballpark and just had a remarkable career. We've stayed in touch our whole lives. And in fact, Frito, I sent him a stack of his baseball cards. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he sent me a text and said, "Man, why'd you send me these cards?" And I said, "Well, I was collecting them for you to send to you one day because I knew you probably weren't." And he said, "You're exactly right. I don't have any." And so uh, I sent some of his cards to him. But Ellis's uh, Ellis's story is a remarkable one. It's for him to tell. I think um, how he ended up at Ranger. It was a good. It was because of a relationship that he had with his grandmother. And, uh, he should, he should probably tell that story on your podcast, but Ellie was a great player. He was the first guy to beat me in the 60 yard dash. And, uh, I thought I, I thought I could run outrun just about anybody. And then I got lined up next to Ellis Burks who David, you know, back in 88, the only one faster from home to first in the big leagues than Ellis Burks was Bo Jackson to give you an idea how fast ellie was he was the first 2020 man for the red sox 20 home runs 20 stolen bases Yeah, he had a nice career and he also uh
0: what didn't his uh hat fly off his head and hit you in the bridge of the nose when (laughs) you're running well
1: yeah so you know how these things it's it's like football in the 40 but it's different you know we run the 60 in baseball and so there's you know 100 guys out there or whatever it was and and they're getting, you know, they're sorting out the guys. The catchers are normally, you know, seven, five, seven, four guys. And so they eliminate themselves very quickly. And then you, you get down to the guys that are going to run sub sevens. And so I know that I'm somewhere around six, five and I could see what was happening over the hour that eventually I was going to run against this guy, Ellis Burks, who was, he was just Ellis, you know, we didn't know who he was going to be one day, but and he was a great guy, great teammate, still a great friend. And, uh, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with him at a lot of major league ballparks. He's put me up in hotels with the team and wherever I've been and sent us to all-star games. And, but eventually Ellis and I are side by side and I, I can remember looking at him going, well, I'm, I'm fixing out running another guy. And I stayed with him for about 20 yards and, uh, at about 30, I tried to get to another gear as he was pulling away and there was no gear left. And, and he took off. I think he ran like a six, two, but his hat came off and the, 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 uh, his, the, the bib of his hat hit me right in the lip and bloodied my lip. <laughs> <That's> <laughs>
0: never best, forget, for
1: sure. never forget that. I had to pick up his hat and hand it to him. And he goes, man, you're a fast little son of a gun, aren't you? And I said, man, I'm not as fast as you.
0: <laughs> and I, I it, I've never met Ellis in person. I know, uh, so, looking forward this year, um, well, actually next year in June, June or July, I forget when it's scheduled for, but uh, both you and Ellis are joining me uh, and a bunch of other former uh, Major League guys, NFL guys, and NBA guys in uh, in Cody, Wyoming, for the the original one was a celebrities against cancer. This year, it will be benefiting Special Olympics, and you and Ellis are both going, and you are actually going to be the keynote speaker this year and also the auctioneer. So I'm really looking forward to meeting Ellis because every time you tell Ellis uh, that you,
1: you know, you just talked to me, he goes, is that that little dude that could hit? <laughs> Isn't that yeah. first? That's exactly. That's what he describes you. Is that that little short guy that could hit? I go, yeah, that's, that's Jeff Fry. But you know, Frito to, you know, Ellis didn't have a plan B like you, there was no plan B. It was baseball, baseball, baseball. And he would knock on my door on a Sunday morning at, you know, eight o'clock during the off season when it's cold, I mean, crazy cold in West Texas. And he would say, Hey man, let's go hit. And I'd say, dude, man, come on. He goes, no, man, we got to hit. And he would take me out. We'd go out to the ballpark. You know, it's hardly a ballpark. By the way, this would make a great film. And I own the, the, the domain Juco ball and, Oh, no. I'm gonna make a movie one day I've written some notes down and started to write a screenplay on this Juco ball and Ellie would would make me throw to him and he would have two sets of batting gloves on and we I mean do you talk about junk baseballs I mean these things were barely baseballs and just string and you know flaps hanging off of them and uh you know we'd tape them up and and he would hit and, and the screen that I was behind was hardly a screen I mean it was about 30 percent screen and the rest was you know I had to h- Throw and duck, but we would. Ellis would make me throw to him, and over and over, and man, he'd hit one off my shin or ricochet off the metal screen, and he would say, "Sorry, dude. Sorry, man. Keep throwing." And he would hit till his hands bled. I mean, he he was so committed to being a professional, and and he conducted himself as a professional, and he had a great mentor, a big leaguer that that mentored him in. Uh, at the Red Sox that taught him how to be a professional. And when you think of Ellis, you never think of a guy that showed, I mean, he was in the home run derby contest. He never, he always respected the game and his opponents and was a great teammate and obviously gifted. Jimmy Morris, you want me to tell that story?
0: I do. Uh, yes. I think that's one of my funny, I don't, I don't know which one I like better. I think I like actually the the one about the snake in the, in the bullpen. Or the machete or, or the axe. Ax. <laughs> I think uh, you pick, you pick. I mean, both of them are.
1: Well, Jimmy Morris wanted to play every day, and he was a great athlete. He did throw ninety even in junior college. Big left hander. I loved his glove. It was a heart of the hide Pro Six model glove that I somehow ended up with at TCU. But he, not his glove, but I finally got one. But he was he was an incredible pitcher. But he wanted to be an everyday player too, and he looks le- nothing like the guy that portrayed him in the movie The Rookie. And so he just finished pitching and he was just begging to get in the lineup somehow. So coach finally, coach Jack Allen, who's no longer with us, put him in right field. And, you know, baseball, uh, he begged to be out there. And sure enough, the ball's going to find a ball hit between him and Ellis in center field. And Jimmy's going back to get it. And he reaches up to make the catch and a, a bumblebee stings him in his glove. And he stops and throws his glove up and starts dancing around the outfield because his bee has just stung him. Meanwhile, the runner's running around the bases and um, Ellis picks the ball up, throws it in, guy ends up on third. And at the half inning, you know, uh, they get ready to go back out and Jimmy says, am I still in? And coach Alice says, yeah, but you put on the catcher's gear. And he says, I'm catching. And he said, no, you're going to play right field with the catcher's gear on. And Jimmy went out there to right field with the shin guards and everything on. And Man, Jimmy did not like that, and he he transferred <laughs> shortly thereafter. He did not stay beyond the fall season uh, <laughs> at uh, at Ranger, and uh, you got to look hard for that in the book. He doesn't mention Ranger very much, but uh, Jimmy was a very talented player uh, who really matured mentally and, and became a uh, a heck of a player in the in the big leagues. And the story is a, a remarkable one.
0: Yeah, and uh, he's actually doing uh, keynote speaking now. Like- yeah. I've seen, yeah. uh, I mean, he has a great story. Obviously, we love the movie and and all that. But, uh, so was the guy that, who was Ellis's mentor, was that Jim Rice?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I had the privilege to meet Jim, uh, Jim Rice, uh, my time with the Red Sox. He was our hitting coach. And I mean, what a great guy. He used to whoop me regularly on the golf course. I'd like, I'd like another shot at him right now. But uh, I want to tell you a quick, uh, Jim Rice story. So, uh, we are in Baltimore and I play golf. I wasn't playing every day. So I would go play golf with Wakefield and Derek Lowe and a few of the guys. And so go play golf one day and, and, uh, come to the field. And I went to Jimmy Williams. I said, Jimmy, I said, uh, well, actually at first I went to Buddy Bailey, who was a bench coach. I said, Buddy, I said, is there any way we can come early tomorrow to take some early BP? Um, Normally BP starts 4.30, I guess, or 5 for the the uh, visiting team. And I wait right before uh, we take the field for the game that night. And, buddy, I said, hey, buddy, what would you find out? He goes, I don't think it's going to happen, Captain. And I'm like, what? So we can't even come early in practice, you know, to try and get better? And so I find out that Jim Rice is playing golf the next day. And so Wakefield tells me that Jim Rice is in his group and, you know, I knew that's the reason why we weren't going to take early BP. So I finally went in to Jimmy Williams, our manager, and I said, Jimmy, I said, why can't we come early tomorrow and take BP? I got some of us guys who don't play all the time would like to come early and work out. He goes, you want to play? You want to come early tomorrow, Fredo? And I'm like, Yeah. He goes, okay, I'll tell Jim Rice. And I immediately knew what was going to happen, that Jimmy was going to tell Rice we have early BP, and this was going to mess up his chance to play golf the next day. I knew he wouldn't be happy about that. So
1: (laughs) so, uh,
0: sure enough, uh, I go get in the shower real fast, and all of a sudden Rice comes walking in with his clipboard. He goes, hey, Frito. And I was like, yeah, what's up, Jimmy? He goes, you want to hit early tomorrow? I was like, yeah, Jimmy, can we? He goes, 2 o'clock. And so now I knew he was pissed. I knew he was pissed. So I went to Wakefield and I say, hey, what, what time is y'all's tee time tomorrow? He goes eight o'clock. And I said, eight o'clock, nine, did start doing the count in the hour? So I was like, no, we done 12. <laughs> so I could probably go play golf and still make it here in early BP. So sure enough, I went to the golf course in Rice's place. I get there, it's called Bull Rock, this great public course um, in Baltimore. I play golf with Wakefield and right when we got there, they handed us these bag tags with our names on them, except the one they gave me said Jim Rice on it. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, so I'm going to take this to the field. We go to the field. I, he was hardly talked to me. He was so mad at me. He took early BP. It's <laughs> right before the game starts. And uh, Mike Stanley's sitting there in the middle of the clubhouse talking to uh, Jim Rice in a folding chair right next to each other. And so I kind of pull up my folding chair. Right next to Stano, on the other side is Rice. And I said, and I have the bag tag that says Jim Rice on it, Bull Rock, and I hand it to Stano. I said, Stano, will you give this to Rice for me? (laughs) He he turns and hands it to Jim Rice. I can't really say on the podcast uh, what Jim Rice said to me that day, but uh, it wasn't very nice. But he started laughing because he knew what I had done. But uh, what a great mentor for Ellis and Jim Rice.
1: Yeah, he was funny. Uh, he, he took he took Ellis under his wing as a young rookie in '87 and got him the right clothes and taught him how to behave and conduct himself as a as a professional. and And Ellis has nothing but great things to to say about about Jim. It was great. Great knowing Ellis throughout his career, and he's a great man of character and a great teammate, and obviously a great player. And you mentioned my uncle; you know, he coached us. Don Flowers. Not only was he in the you know Ranger Hall of Fame, but he was also an All American and played for for then Pan American University down in the Rio Grande Valley. Now it's the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And, and my uncle was more like a a big brother to me. Uh, lived with him in San Antonio when Dad was deployed. And and uh, just a great baseball player one of the best hitters in the state of Texas at the time and uh, just a great uh, old school baseball guy and and I I not only you know my dad and my but also my my uncle a great a great deal for you know teaching me how to play the game the right way um uh, and re- and junior college is a great way to make mistakes and 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 learn and and mature physically and mentally and and get ready to go somewhere else which you and I both had the opportunity to do
0: right and and your uncle is uh big fisherman lake leon
1: right yeah he's a we, we we fished uh professionally a little bit bass fished and chased tournaments around and uh he's pretty good he's a pretty good fisherman
0: and he has his jugs too doesn't he have jugs out for his trot lines or something on lake leon and uh, yeah and
1: you've got it you've got to mark your jugs you know david when you put out trot lines you got to mark your jugs and have your date and your name on it and stuff but he's got them all marked uh uh she gone uh, <laughs> So we got she gone jugs floating around Lake Leon uh, and trot lines. It's so, it's so funny. You've had a, a, uh, an impact on the game Frito and I hope we can, we can turn that impact into a really an extraordinary positive outcome for, for players of all ages.
0: I thank you, buddy. And, uh, you know, one last thing I want to add is that, uh, one of my good friends, uh, is a, uh, Special assistant to the GM of a Major League Baseball team, and he called me yesterday and said, "Hey, I, I want to get with you. I want to get some shirts, some Shigon shirts, uh, for our coaching staff in AAA because um, our pitching coach and his wife and all the other coaches are huge Shigon fans. So he's going to meet with me on Saturday, so I can give him some uh, Shigon T-shirts, and you know the the Shigon thing, like you know." All about it. It, it just kind of came about accidentally, and um, you know. But I, I know that it's having an impact. I got a message today from Jimmy Folks, uh, who lives in Georgia, and uh, his his son Jacob is eleven years old, maybe twelve now. And I met them a couple years ago, and uh, sent Jacob an autographed picture. And Jimmy kept telling me he was videoing Jacob running to their mailbox. It's a pretty good little run from their front porch, and. Every day, Jacob would run out there, knowing that I was sending him a picture. And, um, you know, he finally got it and was so excited. I have all these pictures of him. and Got to meet him last year in Atlanta. Had had lunch with him and his dad. And, uh, you know, he, this little kid is is an inspiration. He's made videos of me imitating me, and uh, you know, really become friends with him and his dad. And, you know, I'm promised at some point if Jacob becomes a professional baseball player that yours truly is going to be his agent. But uh, hey,
1: that leg kick of yours that a lot of kids are adopting now, that's a great timing mechanism. And I love it when I see a kid mimicking the leg kick. I wished I would have, you know, had enough courage to try it. Uh, And I know the story you've talked about on other podcasts, but you were you were a great hitter. And uh, I'm glad to see that other kids are starting to hit like you did.
0: Well, and, and you know how the leg kick, I won't tell the leg kick story, but i told it too many times, but um, you know, Ricky Rona, uh, my roommate in AA, is the one that suggested that uh, I hit with a leg kick, and I was pretty much, uh, I wouldn't say I was like brave to do it, it was a desperation, because I was hitting so poorly, and um, now Ricky Rona, who lives in Tulsa, and I've introduced you two to each other, both uh, avid hunters and fishermen. And now Ricky Rona is also a friend of yours that uh, I hope to see next week. I mentioned that I was coming up there and hope to get with him um, because we would like him to be, you know, at least some part of our uh, basic fundamental skills, character development and leadership camp that we're going to do.
1: Yeah. No question about it. And uh, he will be a part of it. It's going to be a great, we're putting it all details together and, uh, we're going to do it the right way and we're going to announce it probably on you know on whatever we're she going on probably on my twitter at Flowers, or whenever you do it um, But you want me to, cool. you want me to finish with the uh, the axe story from the bullpen? Well, I college. know you
0: have a tea time. I know you're pr- I have a, I have a senior league baseball game in 2 hours. And I know you have a 4:40 tea time, but if you have time to tell that story, I think it'd be a good way to end it.
1: All right, so I'm, I'm going to use the the name Willie Frazier. Uh, he was not on our junior college team, but Willie and I played against each other in Newburgh, New York, uh, and I, he was a great competitor. So I'm going to use Frazier, and I'm going to use uh, uh, Harris or Burks. Uh, now use Harris. Okay, so uh, it's a junior Ranger junior college game going on, and uh, Ellis Burks and I are 17 year old. We're sitting on the bench, and the game's going on, and and the manager comes running down from the bullpen. The little, I don't mean the team ma- the, 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 what do I say? What do I mean, Frito? The manager. Like the,
0: equipment man, oh, just the guy the, who yeah, yeah. fills the water jugs and makes sure
1: the equipment's yeah. out there. Great guy. You got to have that guy. And he loved the game and he was there. And we called him Manager Mike. And so Manager Mike comes running down from the bullpen during the middle of the game. And Coach Allen's coaching third base. And at Ranger, the dugout is right there on the third base. Side, I mean, you're right there on top of the third base coach. Manager Mike comes down and he's standing there and he's out of breath. It's kind of a, you know, short guy and he's out of breath and he's obviously concerned about something. And he says, uh, "Coach," and this is during the game. Coach Coach Allen's got a cigar back then in '82. He's got a cigar and he, and he goes, "What is it, Manager Mike?" And he's he's given signs from the third base. Signs he's talking to Manager Mike and he says, uh, "Coach, uh, Fraser." Frazier is is chasing Harris with an ax in the bullpen. And Coach Allen looks back out to the field. He gives some more signals. And then he looks back into the dugout and he goes, why the hell we got an ax in the bullpen? (laughs) And uh, Coach Baker, Rob Baker, was standing there no longer with us. He's standing there. And he always stood on the side of the dugout with one leg, up against the wall with his arms crossed and his hat pulled down over his eyes. And he had an underbite, and he'd say, Anybody know why we got an axe in the bullpen? And every junior college team has a pitcher, typically a left-hander, who's been playing junior college ball for like eight years. And we had one of those. His name was Jamie Price, and I loved him. And he looked like the guy that uh, – he looked like Casey in the Sunshine Band when Casey in the Sunshine Band was younger. So he looked like Casey. And he's in the back of the dugout um, and the red man representative, the guy that reps red man chewing tobacco, pulls up in an El Camino. And Alice and I are just sitting there on the bench eating sunflower seeds. And he pulls up and walks right into our dugout with a case of red man chewing tobacco. Which today, I mean, you can't imagine this stuff. And it's like he had done this every game because he had his own parking spot right behind the dugout. And so he takes a case of Redman into the back of the locker room, which is connected to our dugout. And game continues on. Manager Mike's still standing there. And Jamie Price comes out, and he's loading up a bunch of Redman and is you know, getting a chew. And he obviously notices something. Jamie Price does that something's wrong. And he looks and he goes, what's, what's the story? What's going on? And Coach Baker says, Coach wants to know why we got an axe in the bullpen. And Jamie goes, oh, rattlesnakes. He goes, there's a rattlesnake nest out in left field, and every time there's a foul ball or a home run hit, we take the axe out with us to get the ball, and the axe protects us from the rattlesnakes. Coach Baker looks out at Coach Allen, and he says, rattlesnakes, Coach. There's a rattlesnake den out there in left field beyond the wall. Coach Allen, game's still going on. He goes, "Oh, that makes sense. So manager Mike goes, coach, what do you want me to do about Frazier chasing Harris with an ax? And coach Allen took his cigar out and looked down. He goes, ah, Mike, don't worry about it. Frazier will never catch Harris. (laughs) 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 And as a 17-year-old freshman, I remember thinking, what in the world? And... And our leadoff hitter, I, I got to say uh, his name because he, he works for Affleck Insurance now, Eric Leger. First pitch I ever saw at a, at a junior college ballpark, he took it deep. First pitch I ever saw, and I went, wow, I'm at a whole nother level right now. I'm at the next level.
0: <laughs> this is pretty good baseball back then. I, I remember with Carl Albert, we made it uh, farther than any um, team in our school's history, we made it to the Juco tournament, and I had great memories and still have a lot of great friendships from from Juco. I would, highly recommend to parents to send their kids to juco It uh, teaches you how to do without which i think a lot of kids uh, these days don't understand and uh, how to work for things and you know, i can remember having five dollars on a weekend where me and my three roommates would go to walmart and buy a loaf of bread and and, and a package of bologna and that was what we ate for the weekend
1: oh yeah we got a lot of burritos there
0: yeah. Yeah. All sup. You had to get the little bean burrito and, or, or we'd hit the, uh, the local gas station convenience store late at night when they're about to throw all the food out and that's what we'd eat for dinner.
1: But, uh, yeah. You'd figure it out. We fried fish, we did everything and, uh, we were, we were glad to have it and, uh, boy, we sound like old men right now uh, yeah. and we probably are, but man, that JUCO is a great way to, to develop young men of character and, and, uh, but Boy, it just has a way of humbling you and, and making you figure out how to do things.
0: That's right. Well, Flowey, this has been a long time coming. Um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you a week from today in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where my partner, um, who I believe—if I correct me if I don't say this right—but uh, he was the battalion commander of the Special Operations Forces. In northern Afghanistan, John Donahue will be my partner, and Coach Alan Wardis um, will be your partner. And, uh, man, we're going to have a good time.
1: We are. I look forward to it. And, uh, gosh, it's been a privilege. David, great meeting you today. I hope we get to meet in person one time, and uh, hopefully you can be a part of continuing to make the the great game of baseball, the one that we love so much. Baseball, Ray, it's the one thing that's constant, baseball.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Fly. Hang on for a second at the end, and uh, I'll uh, let you go hit the golf ball. But this is Jeff Fry um, and my special guest, Craig Flowers, signing off from the She gone podcast. She gone.